Okay, we are in the middle of, uh, in between sermon series, so we finished up Frontlines of Faith, First Timothy. We're moving ahead to learning to share our faith with others, uh, which will be a, a whole series on evangelism, apologetics, giving an answer for your faith. But we had these like three weeks in between where it was just who knows what we're going to do. So what I did was I, I pulled out some like sermons that I didn't get to preach here from past sermon series called Running with the Giants. And we're talking about three Old Testament heroes of the faith who are teaching us about faith. We learned about Caleb, we learned about Habakkuk, and now today we're going to learn about uh, Josiah. Josiah is going to teach us about faith that reforms. Hey, listen, there comes a point in your faith walk with the Lord where he says something needs to change. Something big, something small, many things, but something needs to change. It's at that moment that you need to learn the meaning of the word reform. Another way to put it would be repentance. Another way to put it would be renewal, where God wants to bring a season of change into your walk. How does that happen? How do I know if God is pointing at an area in my life and demanding that there be some changes? We're going to find out today. But when it comes to King Josiah, you need to know that his story is incredible. Um, Why? His life and his rule were predicted by a prophet 300 years before he was born. You want to know what would be amazing? Seeing your name in the Bible. Am I right? Do you want to know what would be even more amazing than that? Finding out God was talking about you by name 300 years before you were born. There's this guy, Bill. He's going to come into the world, and here's what he's going to do. That happened. So... I felt like I wanted to bring this, this story of, of how Josiah's name was mentioned 300 years before he was born to life for you. So the intro to the sermon is going to be me acting out a little skit for you. I always wanted to be in a drama, but I never went out for it in high school, so now's my big debut. I did this in the first service, and no one gave me an Oscar. But hey, I'm going to go for it anyway. This little drama is starring two main actors, and I will be playing both the lead and the supporting role. Are you ready? Here I go. Well, hello. My name is King Jeroboam. Did I mention I'm a king? I'm your king. I'm a great king. And because of the law, I have the power to rule over all of you. You're welcome. But that's not enough power, you see. I also wish to rule religiously. I want to be in control of the spiritual side of things. So I have made my own altar and I will bring my own sacrifices and I will become your priest. I'm your priest. I'm your king. Today, I'm going to offer this sacrifice up to you and therefore I'm standing between you and God. Boy, how grateful you should feel to have me, Jeroboam, as your king. Hi, I'm a prophet. Uh, My name doesn't even get in the Bible, so I won't tell you, but uh, prophets have a bad rap in the Bible because we do strange things. We dress weird, we eat funny things, and God tells us to do these things that are just crazy. So uh, yeah, God told me to come up to the king today, right now, and God asked me to just shout at his altar. Just just shout at it. So uh, I'm going to do that. And God also asked me to talk about a king that hasn't been born yet. So I'm going to do that. I don't know where it's going, 
but I'm going to do it, and I might die. Uh, so here I go. All right, my offering is almost ready, and behold, your king and your priest shall intercede for you between God. Here I go. <clears throat> altar! Oh, altar! Behold, on you shall be burned dead men's bones. For there shall come a king named Josiah. He will undo all of the wickedness that is about to be done. I am about to offer my offering. Who are you to come in and interrupt me? I am a king. <laughs> Seize him. Oh, ow. I can't move my hand. Why can't I move my hand? Whoa, my altar just broke. Why did my altar just break and I can't move my hand? <laughs> okay. Uh, will, uh, will you please talk to your God for me and ask him to heal my hand? Well, I don't know if I should. You were talking all tough five minutes ago, acting like you're the king of kings, and there you are. Now you can't even move your hand. All right, I'm, I am so sorry. Will you just please pray to your God on my behalf and please restore my arm? I don't know. Do you think I should? Do you think I should? All right, I will. Please restore his hand. Oh. my hand again. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're really lucky, but everything I announced is going to come true. You've been warned. Now I have to leave. Goodbye. Now the way the story ends is actually on the way home. The prophet does something really sinful, and so a lion comes out and eats him. So now we're going to release the live lion. <laughs> Just kidding. The end. Maybe I should start every sermon with some bad acting. <laughs> I really wanted to bring that to life to you because when I thought about it, it was so vivid. It was like this king in his pride, so pompous, doing what he shouldn't do, and this random guy coming up, shouting at his altar. And then the thing breaks, and the king can't move his hand. God instantly, when this, the moment this king sees him, God, bam, judged him, and he couldn't even move his arm. Why? God really wanted to send a strong message. You see, this king would start a season of wickedness in the nation that would last for 300 years. There'd be some mild reforms, but it was he started it. And at the beginning of it all, God gave a warning. Hey, I'm going to let some of this play out, but there's coming a king who's going to put an end to it all. We learn a lot about God. 300 years will pass. Do you know in the city of Bethel, they made an altar, or they made a uh, monument to this prophet. And it was there for 300 years, this monument to the prophet who came and declared a king would be born. Well, let's pray, and then we'll hear about the life of Josiah. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you give us clear warnings in Scripture. You don't always, you don't even often show up at the very moment of our sin and, and appoint someone to shout at us, but you did that with Jeroboam. And you wanted him and the whole nation and us to know 
how you felt about what was about to happen. Show us how this led to a predicted period of renewal. Show us how this led to a period of reform. Teach us what that means in our own faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. If you want to go back and read that whole story of Jeroboam and the prophet and the lion, that was found in 1 Kings 13. That's also listed on your bulletin. In 2 Kings chapter 22, know that you are going back to the year 630 B.C. 630 B.C. So, you know, this was like 900 years after Moses had led the people out of the promised land. A lot of time has gone by, and uh, the country is just degenerating right now. Um, So, 2 Kings 22, chapter 1, we meet King Josiah. It says this, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, in sharp contrast to King Jeroboam, Josiah was uh, praised as a good king. The first thing I want you to write down is this. Write this down. God is not okay with my sin. We find that in the book of Kings because king after king gets a report card. And either he did wicked in the eyes of the Lord or he did good in the eyes of the Lord. God is not okay with my sin and he notices when I'm walking in the righteous path. Why did this shouting man show up to holler at Jeroboam? Because God is not okay with our sin. Why is the Bible saying that, that this King Josiah was good? He didn't turn aside to the left or to the right because God wants us to know that. He looks with favor on the righteous and he looks with wrath upon the wicked. Um, Josiah actually became a king at age eight. Do you know any eight-year-olds who you would trust to run our country? Name one, because I've got an eight-year-old, and don't even mention it to him. Eight-year-old running the country? This kid, I could just picture him like, you know, everyone's like, oh, your majesty, and he's like got a Star Wars t-shirt on, like a Wookiee. You know, play an Angry Bird on the iPad. And it's like, oh, His Highness is here. And an eight-year-old king. We're, in America, we're kind of anti-monarchy, you know. The Revolutionary War kind of did away with that. But, but we love baby royalty. Everyone's crazy about Princess Charlotte and little baby Prince George. Check this out, right? They follow this all. There's little George. There he is. Baby royalty. And here's another picture. He gets his face on the cover of a magazine. Oh, life with George and Charlotte. What's it like to be a royal family? Now, look at That's today's equivalent of Josiah's life. He was born royal. He was a king at eight, right? Uh, paparazzi is like, what's he doing now? Is he running? Is he walking? What's he do- oh, okay, good. Now he's, he's older. Uh, because of this, he was an unlikely king to turn out good. Uh, think of his opportunity to indulge or abuse or compromise his power. Everything being handed to him. Never has to work for anything. Uh, like, what are the odds that this eight-year-old king is going to turn out okay and not become a spoiled royal brat? He didn't even have a good upbringing. His father was assassinated because he was so evil. They'd rather have the eight-year-old than his wicked father. His grandfather sacrificed some of Josiah's uncles to a false idol. Uh, What happened to your Uncle Bob? Oh, yeah, Grandpa sacrificed him. What about your Uncle Bill? Yeah, him too. A couple of them got 
killed by grandpa. <gasps> it's like Springer. Crazy family. And this eight-year-old is now king. Yet we find out in 2 Chronicles 34 that at age 16, Josiah began to seek the Lord. We find out at age 20, he began to reform the land. We find out that he began to repair the temple, and God was at work in his heart. And now here, he's 26 years old. So he's at work. And the Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the way of David, his father. David was the ideal king. So David wasn't his literal father, but David was the standard by which all other kings were measured. It says, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He did not waver, vacillate, or veer off the path. God is not okay with my sin. He condemned the wicked king and announced that there would come a time where a good king would set things straight. Then Josiah arose. Okay, what happened though? Well, check out verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king set Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, the secretary, to the house of the... I worked a long time on those names. I hope you're impressed. Say, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. So now they're talking about temple reform. Let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, the builders, the masons. Let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. What was going on here is the temple was, uh, had fallen into a state of disrepair. It was all on the outside, run down. This was Solomon's gorgeous, beautiful, awesome temple. And it was now, you know, filled with trash. What would it be like if, remember last year when we started our building campaign and we took up all these big offerings and we showed you all the blueprints? And what if you showed up and, and the place was just filled with garbage and construction equipment and nothing was being done? And all the money was just off in the side somewhere. You'd be like, what's going on? But the external, the temple itself being run down, was a symptom of the spiritual condition of the Israelites. Their souls were rotting away. They didn't care about the awesome presence of the Lord. They didn't want to go and meet with Him. And you'll see throughout this whole story how bad things had gotten in Josiah's day. And then, get this, it says in verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Verse 11, or uh, verse 10. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, uh, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So they're, they're cleaning it out. Like imagine work day. You show up work day and you're cleaning, throwing the trash out in the dumpster, and then you pick up this book, and like, <laughs> a scroll or a book or whatever, and they're like, huh, what's this? And they open it up and it's like Deuteronomy. And they're like, huh, we should read this. We found a book. Now, we hear that, and the author of the Bible is intending for us to be like, it's the Bible. Like, you don't even know what that is. And they're like, oh, it's a book. Let's read it. Oh, maybe the king should hear about this. Here you go. This is how bad things had gotten. It'd be like you clean in your house, and you're so spiritually out to lunch that one day you pick up a book you find, and you're like, the Bibli. What is the Bibli? Hey, honey, I found a book. We should be like, what? How, how awful is this? 
They just found it in some corner. Seems like they were unaware of all that it had declared. But they found a book. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, imagine these words falling on his ears for perhaps the first time. He tore his clothes. That's a sign of outrage. And he commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikim the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the, get this, words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the, here it is again, words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. God is not okay with my sin, but here's what we see here. You can jot this down. God's word is God's warning. They found a book. It explained so much to them about how messed up their country was, why God's judgment had come, why the blessing wasn't there. Why does this keep happening to us? All these people keep coming and beating us in battle. And then they hear this and they're like, oh, we're in big trouble. We're breaking this book. Aha! God's word is God's warning. Do you know in your life, God will warn you about certain things? But how? Is he going to get some wacky prophet to come up to you right before you're about to steal something from Walgreens and be like, Behold! A thief! Probably not. He put it in a book. Don't steal. Right? And God's word was collected throughout hundreds of years. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, chapter 1 of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. This is all the record of that. God speaks to you in this book. One of the things he does is he warns you. I didn't know it was going to get this bad. How come my life is so terrible? There's a warning right in here, and you just off the cliff. He gave you a warning. This book is filled with warnings. Uh, we did our first ever pastor's retreat here at Harvest Palace. And uh, we went up to Lake Geneva, and we, uh, we prayed. We prayed for a long time for so many of you, and we also planned for the fall, but we also had some fun, so we rented a boat. We went on Lake Geneva, and uh, when you go into the boat rental place, they're like, oh, sure, you want to rent a boat? Come on over here and watch a video first. And they press play on this video, and it starts out all nice and fun with these people telling you how cool it's going to be. Then they start showing you some warning stuff. Like, this is what happens if you do this with the boat, and the boat's like flipped over. And then this is what happened. And there's like boats colliding. It's like, and you're like, oh my. And they want to warn you about what happens if you don't treat the boat with respect, right? So we're all freaked out now. I'm out there on the water like everyone just sit down. A yacht is just going to run us over if we don't get, you know, we didn't even let Jeremy drive the boat. Because we were warned. They warned us about a boat. You don't follow the instructions and it's going to be, you know, going to be submerged. God gives you warnings because he loves you. God's word is a warning. This is the warning on a million different choices you'll make in life. Here's the next thing. Write this down. God's word is God's standard. God's word is God's standard. We saw that right in 22 verse 2 where it said he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. This is the standard of judgment. Um, God's word is God's standard. And 
Too often, people assume that God is okay with what they're doing because the pain hasn't come yet. Well, nothing has happened yet, so God must be fine with what I'm doing. All of my, all my girlfriends are telling me that it's fine that I'm doing this. All of my buddies are saying there's no problem. Yeah, but God's word says you're going over a cliff. This is the standard. And when you go against this book, it's to your own peril. God's word is, the sta- is God's standard. God's word is God's warning. We should be haunted when our lives collide with the truth we find in his word. The reality is this. We serve a God who monitors every human being every moment of every day. Because he is just and holy, this is a big deal, because he is just and holy, you will not get away with any sin ever. Every single sin will be punished in some way, shape, or form. It's either you're going to pay for it or Christ is going to pay for it on the cross. But it's only one or the other. When you understand that you don't get away with anything, it clears up your mind and it leads you to renewal, to reform, to repentance. God's not okay with my sin. His word is his warning. His word is God's standard. He's been patient 300 years with these Israelites from the warning. All right, number two, write this down. All right, so I got a wake-up call. Now what? Well, I must repent to be forgiven of sin. You can put that down. I must repent to be forgiven of sin. We have here an amazing, comprehensive portrait of repentance. It says in verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, you have to hear the truth. To truly repent, you have to know what God's standard is. When he heard the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That's a sign of outrage. And he, he, it's the beginning stage of repentance. You can write this down. When it comes to the sin that you see around you, are you outraged like Josiah? Are you outraged? That's the beginning stage of repentance. You can't stand the sin in your life. This has gone on for far too long. This needs to get out of my heart, out of my home, out of my marriage. Then you look around your world and you're like, why are we letting this happen as a country? Why is this going on down the street? You're outraged by sin. No more playing games with it. Repentance basically means to turn around. You're going in one direction. It's going to a bad place. You end up in a humiliated place. You're like, how did I get here? You turn around. That's repentance. It's basically a turn around. Um, You won't turn around unless you're outraged by the sin you see in your own heart. I was at the airport a few years ago, and what do you do when you're sitting there waiting for a plane for hours? You just look at people, and you're just like... So I saw this guy... This guy was walking by, and he was like, he was like dressed in this really like expensive suit. He was like 6'2", he was tan, and he looked like a somebody, and he had swagger. I mean, he walked like he was a somebody going to meet somebody. And I was like, man, I wish I was a somebody going to meet somebody. And, and he was just walking all cool. And I'm like, man, he looks like he's famous or something. And <laughs> as I'm watching him, I'm not even kidding, he walks right into the women's restroom. <laughs> right in! And I'm just like, this is going to be amazing because there's no way he can walk out of there with swagger anymore. Sure enough, after like a couple seconds, he comes out like this. And he goes, you know, over to the men's room. And I'm just like, you just lost all man points for life. What a model of repentance. You're going one way, and then you're just like, whoa, how did I end up here? This is humiliating. I'm going to turn around because I'm going the wrong way. That's repentance. 
And we have to repent to be forgiven of sin, and repentance begins with outrage. Nationally, Israel had a lack of outrage. They didn't care. Do you know how bad things had gotten in Israel? 26 years, 20... He's on the throne. Do you know that people were still bringing their children down into the valley? He could see it from his palace. And they were burning them to death to to a false god. It's going on every day. Do you know there was a whole hotel they had set up in in Solomon's temple full of prostitutes? Male homosexual prostitutes. What was going on in there? That's how bad it had gotten. And Josiah's looking around and he's like, we are dead if we don't get this thing taken care of. He was outraged at the sin that had become normal. His country wasn't even fighting the battle anymore. He was also fearful. You can write that down. Are you fearful when you see the sin in your own heart, when you see the sin in the lives of those you love? Are you afraid for them? Are you afraid for what God will bring into their life because of their sin? Sometimes when I meet with people and counsel them and they're just not getting it, how serious this is and how bad of a place this is going to take them, I just say to them, I say, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid of what God is going to do to you. Sometimes they wake up. It says here in verse 13, Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Why? Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. Hey, when your life veers off of this book, great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against you. Well, not me. I'm a child of God, and Jesus took all my sins away at the cross. I don't have anything to be afraid of. That's not biblical, because the Bible says that it's time for judgment to begin in the house of the Lord, which means when Christians who should know better start marching out of this book, God brings judgment, discipline, pain on a church to show them that he means what he said. We have to repent if we're going to be forgiven. What does repentance look like? Outrage! How can this be happening? Fear! What is God going to do? So many people sin without fear. They've messed with their conscience. They're telling themselves God's okay with it, and they are not afraid of a holy God. Uh, They think their sin is harmless. Check this out. This is a picture of an animal that's harmless. Oh, that's my little sinny winnie. My sin is so cute and brings me joy and makes my life better and takes away my problems. My sin is my friend. We think our sin, you would not sin ever unless you convinced yourself that it's bringing you something good or taking away something bad. You always sin because you think it's going to bring you something better. Always. It's a lie. I do it too. This is what you think your sin is, a cute little purry kitty. And God says, no, this is sin. Every sin. Well, I'll just put it on a choke chain. Good luck with that. You will not control your sin. Your sin will control you, and ultimately your sin will consume you. Sin will never lead you to a good place, so it has to be repented of. Are you outraged? Are you afraid? Sin is a deadly predator coming for your marriage, coming for your kids, coming for your church. Are you ready to fight the fight? Are you going to just lay down and fall asleep and take it? Are you afraid? The third sub-point here is are you anguished? Are you anguished? 
Where does that one come from? Well, look at verse 18 in chapter 22. They, uh, they, uh, Josiah sent to a prophetess and said, go, go ask, she's a woman of God, go ask her what God is saying. We're, we're repenting, go ask her what God says, please. Verse 18, he gets a response. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to do, acquire, inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. So these are all the warnings that he found in the first five books of the Bible. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. There it is. Wept before me. He was anguished. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. He was in anguish. He was, he was outraged. He was afraid. But when he was all alone, he was weeping. He was weeping for his own sin. He was weeping for the sins of his ancestors. He was weeping for his country because he was a broken man. He was in anguish. Does your sin bring you sorrow? Are you broken to tears over the sin that has been ruining your life? Are you broken to tears over the sin that you find in the hearts of your children? Or are you denying it? Are you looking past it? Are you broken to tears over the sin that you see in your country? Does it break you? Does it grieve you? Or are you just like, ah, whatever? This was a broken man. This was a repented man. Too often when we meet with people and we're like, this is not going to end well for you. You're leading your home to a bad place. Too often people have closed ears and they feel nothing while they do it. Their hearts are like marble. You can't get a word into them. But there are those few, there are those few who will break and they'll start to weep and they'll say, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe it's gotten this far. I can't believe it's gotten this bad. And then we can work with that. God can work with that. But when we harden our hearts, it's only going to get worse. It's important to notice here that we learn something about God. God sends word to Josiah, your heart was penitent. God looks straight into your heart. He knows exactly how you respond to your own sin. Your heart was penitent. You humbled yourself. You heard what I said, and you wept. God knows exactly how you're responding to the word you're hearing today. He looks straight into your soul, and he orders your future according to your response to his word. God's not okay with your sin. His word warned you. His word is his standard. We have to repent of sin. That means outrage. That means fear. That means anguish. And then the good news is this. We'll find mercy. In verse 20, therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Wow, he gets to die in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. All of this was great. He, he was, judgment was delayed because of his repentance. This is what we would call the crisis. He heard the word of the Lord. He responded, and God responded to his response. But then he started acting out his repentance. So write this down. God's not okay with my sin. I must repent to be forgiven of sin. But write this down. Third, 
I must take drastic action to be free of sin. He had a good cry fest in the Lord's presence, but now it's time to get to work bringing real change to the country. What does that look like? Check out chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the priests and prophets, all the people, both small and great. National meeting! National meeting! Everyone get to Jerusalem now! And they all get there, the priests, the, the men, and they're like, What's he, what are we here for? What are we here for? And he's like, sit down! It says, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. You all sit down and be quiet! Deuteronomy 1. And he just read it to them. How shocking could it be if that happened in our country? National meeting, everyone get to D.C., sit down. Genesis 1. And it's just read to us. Your eyes would be like this. Something has happened in the heart of the king. He's taking drastic action. He gets the whole country together and he gets them into this book. That's where it starts. He reads it. And he responds to it first. He read it in their hearing, verse 2, all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant, promise, treaty before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with, get this, all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. Hey, do you want to get a reformation, a renewal happening in your, in your walk of faith? Align your heart with this book. Whatever it takes to just saturate your soul with these words and with all of your heart, turn to the word of the Lord. Take drastic action and you'll be free of sin. There were big problems. And in this crisis, he had to do some... He had to do some strong things. Check out verse 7. It says in verse 7, And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. So there's a prostitute hotel, and after they get done reading the book of the Lord, he gets his sledgehammer, and he's like, come on guys, let's get over here. And they tear the thing down. Then there's these women who are hanging things that are devoted to the other gods, and he gets them out of there. You find in this chapter, he's burning things, he's trashing things. Some people get killed because they don't get on the page of what he's doing, and the Lord predicted it all. What, what uh, this horrible King Jeroboam started, I'll be patient, 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 then my patience runs out. Then renewal will come. Write this down. We notice here that repentance is a crisis. Repentance is a crisis. There will be key moments in your life where God expects you to be responsive to the sin that He unveils. A moment where you have to turn from the sin and say, I'm going the wrong way. You have to cry out to the Lord and ask for His forgiveness. Then you have to rid your life of the things that you have been clinging to for so long. It's drastic. You have to go on a rampage. You can't play with it anymore. God is driving some of you to that point today. He's saying, get it out of your life. It can be a private hidden sin that only you know about. It can be a relational sin where the way you're treating this person is impure or out of line or angry or the way you're relating to this person is sinful and God's telling you to turn it around. 
It could be any area of your life where you are just veering off the safe trail of God's word. And he's saying, now's the time. Get back in line with my word. And renewal will come if you do. It's a crisis. Do you know that you get saved in a crisis? How do you get saved? Too often I talk to people who, they make it sound like they don't even know if they're going to heaven. Well, I just go to church and I do things right and I, you know, read my Bible and, and then in the end I'll find out if I get in or not. That's backwards. Faith starts with a crisis. It doesn't end with a crisis. Here and now, God wants you to decide what you believe about his son as accounted in this book. Do you believe Jesus is the king who came from heaven? Do you believe he lived the perfect life? Do you believe he died on the cross? Do you believe he can take away your sins? Do you believe he was thrown in a tomb dead on the third day he rose again? Do you believe in the sight of hundreds of witnesses he ascended to the throne of God and he's seated there now ruling and reigning? Do you believe that? Now is the crisis. And he can see right into your heart. And he could, he could go person to person and say, yes, no. They believe it, they don't. He's in, she's out. He could do it right now. We don't know how much longer we have. The crisis is now. You can reach out and receive the gift of eternal life right now. Your crisis of faith can be right now where you say, great is the wrath of the Lord that's on me. And I need this King Jesus to save me. Repentance is a crisis, but then we see that, write this down, repentance is also a process. Josiah had, each day he'd walk around and he'd look around and be like, that needs to go, that needs to go, that needs to go. Then he'd go to another city and he'd be like, get that out of here, get that out of here, get that out of here. It's sad when you go to a church where they talk about faith as if once you're saved, you should just be perfect from that day on. Like, like oh, you still struggle with sin? Huh, because the rest of us are kind of, you know, we figured it all out. So uh, good luck struggling with your sin because we don't know what that's like. What? Like when you get saved, that begins a lifelong process of God leading you through the, through the cycle of this needs to change, he gives me the strength to change, he builds me anew. Now this needs to change, he gives me the strength, he makes me new. He just tours your whole life throughout your years and he makes everything new in time, but it's a process. Remember what Jesus said? If your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Do you have a thing against blood? Do you get squeamish when you see blood? Because that's supposed to be a strong image of what, how, how we're supposed to react when we find sin in our life. What? I had a, a neighbor when I was a kid. His name was Bobby. He was klutzy Bobby. He, was, he always broke stuff. He managed to break a slip and slide once. You know those big... How do you break a long piece of plastic. He figured it out. Plutzy Bobby. Well, anyway, one day his dad was out mowing the lawn, and his dad left the lawnmower out and went into the house, and Bobby reached under the lawnmower. And just the tip, just the tip of his nose, right off. Yeah, just the tip. Some of you are just like, ew, and I'm talking about the tip of the finger, not even the whole finger, let alone the whole hand. And you're getting all screaming, yeah, when you see sin in your own heart, you're supposed to be like, Ooh, get it out of here. When you see sin in your marriage, you're supposed to be like, Ooh, get it out of here. In your church, we're supposed to take drastic action to get the sin out. Then we get to be free. This is what's called walking faith. Walking faith 
is the process of learning how to honor the Lord every day of your life. Josiah was acting this out. He was just going through the country and cleaning it all out. We read more about his reforms in uh, verse 17 of chapter 23, verse 17. He's cleaning out Bethel, and get this. Then he said, what is that monument that I see? So he's cleaning out Bethel. Do you remember where the original drama that I did, that was in Bethel? And they made that monument. Remember to that prophet? He sees it. He didn't know about it. He sees it now. Hey, what is that? And the men of the city told him, oh, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted all these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. That's been up there 300 years. God was talking about this 300 years ago. How badly does God want you to take that step of renewal, of repentance, of reformation? In Josiah's case, God's been thinking about it for 300 years. Can't wait. Can't wait for Josiah to do this. Can't wait to bring mercy into my country. Can't wait to clear out the filth of this country. And that's his heart towards you when you take steps of repentance. This is a great ending verse in verse 25. It says, before him, Josiah, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the, heart, the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. In that spirit, I'd love to pray with you right now and give you a chance to turn toward the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your might to find renewal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, how patient you were with your people. <clears throat> you waited and watched immorality and you waited and watched sin for hundreds of years, but you made it clear from the beginning you weren't okay with it. Lord, we're grateful for your patience with us. We need your mercy. We need your forgiveness because we will sin. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the sin that we have coddled. Forgive us for the sin that we see as helpful. Forgive us for trusting sin to bring us joy. Or... Lord, forgive us. Thank you for the promise of renewal. When we turn towards you, thank you that you forgive. Thank you, Father, that when we're bound up in sin and caught up in sin and we turn to you, you will forgive. I just think of those here today who are feeling the weight of conviction, just as David said, when my sin was unconfessed, your hand was heavy upon me. My bones rotted. And maybe that's how some feel. May they turn to you. May they find this season of renewal. May they tell someone about their sin. May they find help. And Lord, I think of those who maybe have never in their life yet turned to you for the first time. They have never yet turned toward you and asked for forgiveness for their sin. They've never asked Jesus to be their Savior. And maybe they feel like they're not going to heaven. Well, today I pray that you would help them to hear your voice because the word of the Lord says, turn, repent, and I will heal. Father, I pray that perhaps there are some here today who would who would say in their own heart, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. Jesus, save me, for I am sinful. Come into my heart. Help me to find renewal. Change my life. 
give me the assurance that I'm going to heaven. Father, for those who are calling out to you today, just as Josiah's day found it, may they find that you are a forgiving God. Never will you leave them, never will you forsake them. Bring renewal in our church, bring bring renewal in our homes, bring renewal in our country. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the only true, perfect, holy 